Take D- 37. <laughs> Dave, Dave, we finally get to sit across from one another and talk. I'm very excited. Me too. I love talking to you. Uh, I love talking to you about things that matter and things that don't matter. So. <laughs> yes, uh, you certainly have a lot of experience um, being a part of the Desiring Brethren podcast. Um, how was that? That was great. I, uh, I loved being part of a podcast. I think that Tanner had the vision for what he wanted that to be. And Jackson and I just liked talking with each other and with Tanner. So it was basically just an excuse to hang out with friends. But I, uh, I'm proud of some of what we did. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, you guys certainly covered a lot of topics. Um, and like you said, Tanner has a vision. I don't have a vision. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> so this is really just about hanging out and talking. That's really my vision. Yeah. I think conversation is really coming from my family. This is what we do. We just sit around and talk and get angry at one another. And at the end of the day, we maybe become a little smarter. So that's, that's my vision. Yeah, I think that... There just needs to be more conversation in general, more healthy conversation, I guess. Like people just need to hear people explaining their differing viewpoints, and I think that's good for us. And and so, I don't know. Even if only a handful of people listen to our conversations, it'll be enlightening for some of them, probably. Yeah, and I think <laughs> this is actually selfish of me because I think the way I formulate my thoughts and opinions and then downstream how I end up acting is yeah. through conversation. Yeah, for sure. And so this is, this is very selfish for me. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like because I don't have these conversations very often, I feel like I'm going to explode, like they're just bottled up and I need, to, I need to release them. So this is great just to have an outlet to talk about these things. I have that feeling when I read. Because I read a lot. And um, if I don't call my brother... Or, yes, sit around a campfire and have a discussion. I, I, I think my wife starts to get uh, annoyed. Because <laughs> there are some topics that interest her and some that don't. Yeah. And uh, I think one of the ones we're talking about today may not be of much interest <laughs> to my lovely wife. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a niche topic. So what are we talking about today, Dave? We are talking about something that has bothered me for... Maybe it's like 12 years, ever Amazing. since in high school. We okay. Were, we're talking about uh, total depravity, total inability, whatever you want to call it. Hmm. What is the state of natural man? Okay. And maybe I should try, because as someone who identifies with the Reformed tradition, I've been influenced a lot by Francis Chan, by Timothy Keller. These people... Um, I've read a lot of their books. And so this is kind of where I would come down on it. So let me try and define total depravity as I understand it. And then maybe you can qualify it. I think what total depravity is, is the idea that we are unable to correct our relationship with God. Hmm. How does that sit with you? Yeah, I suppose that's the start. (laughs) Okay, so there'd be, there'd be a lot of unpacking to do with like, okay, what do you mean unable and yes, how how far deep does this go within us? Obviously, with this conversation, we can start with Genesis. Yeah. So Adam sins, Eve sins as well, 
And what I see happen is Genesis 3.22. See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So there's something happening in the garden that when sin enters into humans, they have to be separated from, in this case, the tree of life. And I think that separation, it really creates a picture. And I think the tree of life really goes throughout all of scripture, Israel kind of becoming uh, the root, and then Jesus becoming the tree and us grafting onto that tree. Hmm. I don't know. I could see it. Like you see in Genesis, in Genesis, you don't three, you don't get a detailed theological breakdown of this is what happened to man's nature. Good point. You get specific curses um, that make life worse. Some, <laughs> some of those curses seem to entail like internal strife between man and woman. And then you definitely can look before the fall, there was harmony and unity with God. And then after the fall, you see there's continued disobedience and sin. So, I mean, you get the picture of what happened through just viewing what happened. It's interesting because the first, the first story that we get post-fall shows us that there is a guy who's doing pretty good, Abel. He's bringing pleasing sacrifices to God. Um, God is pleased with him. And there's this other guy, Cain, who's not doing so good, but God has a conversation with him and he tells him, hey, like, you need to get a hold of this. You need to rein in this evil that's brewing within you. And he tells him that he can, I think. He says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, watch out because sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And I I just feel like that's a clear picture of God telling Cain, you can get a grip on what's, what's coming. You can stop this. You can rule over this sin. Um, obviously, he doesn't. But I feel like this first story that happens post-fall shows us the state of, of man's uh, ability, I guess. Uh, maybe we've talked enough about Genesis for now. Why don't we jump over to uh, this idea of sovereignty, Paul actually addresses one of the issues, um, one of the arguments against God's sovereignty um, in Romans 9, 19. You say to me then, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who indeed are you, a human being, to argue with God? Will, what is molded, say to the one who molds it, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that were made for destruction? And what if he's done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, including us whom has he called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Yeah, well, we're making, like, we've made a leap from man's ability back to maybe a further uh, earlier discussion that maybe needs to be had above all this is like what is man's ability in general with God's sovereignty because a lot of people have a view of God's sovereignty as he controls everything he is the potter 
this is all wrapped up in a theological bundle of how how people and God relate to each other. And so yeah. there's a lot of thought out there that God is the potter who molds humans as a potter molds clay. And um and I just I don't see that as what the Bible is telling us. And you might say, um, are you blind? You just read Romans nine. And I think that I mean, there's an earlier Potter story in the Bible, which is Jeremiah 18, which is all about God saying, look, I control what goes on around you. I bring you blessings. I bring you providence or I bring you destruction. And, um, you know, it's, it's pictured in the life of Job, really, right? Yeah. Everything that Job has even his own health is out of his control. Like we can't control that. And God has his own designs for why he brings blessing and why he brings calamity. Um, but the thing that is in Job's hands and the thing that is in people's hands in Jeremiah 18 is their response to God. That's the entire point of why everything is happening, why God is shaping these things is what is your response? How will you respond to what I am doing in the world? And so, uh, in Jeremiah 18, God says, I'm, I'm shaping good things for you, and then you start to sin, so then instead, I'm going to shape bad things for you. Or, I'm shaping bad things for you, and then you start to do good, so now I'm going to shape good things for you. Um, and I just, I think the entire Bible is, you could boil it down almost to, the Bible is God's action now, what is man's response going to be? Yeah, and I think you bring up a really good point in that um, there's something bigger going on here than a than a God who uh, shapes and molds people, but there's a God who has, uh, through His mercy, came into human history and. Um, affected change? I'm not sure. But um, I think that's a good point, right? Obviously, the, the metaphor of him being a potter is much smaller than the salvation story. Hmm. And I think when we are talking about total depravity, we are talking about salvation, about the debt our sin has created in our relationship with God. There's definitely a lot of people that wrap up a whole bunch of ideas into total depravity and total inability into saying that humans are they're cursed with a fallen nature that only can hate God and can't ever choose anything that is worthy we'll, of God. We'll get there, Dave. Don't <laughs> worry. Down the rabbit hole we go. When it comes to repentance, I have some theories that are probably heretical, but <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. How do you deal with Malachi 1, 2 to 3? Um, and this is about Jacob and Esau. And it is, it really does paint a, I think from where I'm sitting, a, a negative portrait of God. This idea of Malachi 1, 2 to 3. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob and hated Esau. 
I have made this hill country a desolation and his heritage a desert of jackals. Um, again, this, this paints a picture in my view of a tyrant, of someone who chooses between two brothers at the expense of one of them. Yeah, I don't think so. Like, for two reasons. One, if you're talking about the choice itself, uh, this is the choice going back to Abraham. When God chooses Abraham, he's not choosing him to the exclusion of the rest of the world, saying, I'm choosing you, and now you're my precious people who, you know, I don't want to... It's the proper <laughs> safety approved language. You know, like, I don't care about anybody else. They can all go to hell. He's saying to Abraham, I'm choosing you in order to bless the rest of the world. And this is, and this is what follows on to Isaac and what follows on to Jacob is that Esau is not excluded by not being the one chosen. Jacob is being chosen, but Esau can be blessed through Jacob because this the whole choosing is meant to bless everybody, right? Yeah, this reminds me of Paul talking about his Jewish brothers and the Gentiles, right? Um, if we jump over to Paul's analogy of um, of the grafting branches, um, this is from Romans 11, and this is where I was getting at with the tree of life, this idea that um, Israel, Abraham, was chosen to, for God's purpose of bringing blessing to the rest of the world through his mercy. So Paul saying in verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, was grafted in their place to share in the rich root of the olive tree, don't boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it's not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. So again, this is attempting to deal with this Jacob and Esau question um, and the, the sovereignty of God, who he chooses, or in my view would be election. <laughs> but I don't want to jump into that too <laughs> hastily. Yeah. So I, like I said, with, with Jacob and Esau, I think that Esau is, he has the opportunity to be blessed through Jacob. Um, and going back to Genesis 4, God says to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And the same thing can be said to Esau. Like, just because you're not the chosen one, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Um, and will you not be grafted in? You know, that's the whole... So Esau, you know, I went through the Bible yesterday and read Esau's life, and there's not a clear picture of, like, him being this good person or bad person in itself. Like, he's, Esau's never praised throughout the Bible for any... So, he, you know, he marries Hittite women that are kind of displeasing to Isaac and the family, and... And he kind of, I don't know, but there's just not really much said on Esau personally, whether he was good or bad. You know, he kind of, he's kind of, he treats his birthright frivolously and, you know, just sort of things like that. You know, he's, 
he's somewhat rightly really angry at Jacob and wants <laughs> to kill him. Um, but, you know, I think that in general, the picture of Jacob and Esau loving and hating goes to talking about Israel and Edom, you know, and, and how the nation of Edom, the Bible definitely says over and over, yeah, they're not so great. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So. Yeah, for sure. So one of the ways I think about total depravity is how God has interacted with several um, figures in the Old Testament. And so I think about uh, Moses, I think about Ezekiel, and Isaiah, or am I forgetting? Anyways, so one of the things in Exodus, uh, when Moses is speaking to God, uh, Moses says, show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all your goodness pass before you and proclaim before you the name. The Lord and I will be made gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. So one of the things when I think about total depravity is this idea that the relationship's been severed. And so we can no longer be in the presence of God because sin can't be in the presence of God and it would kill us. So that's one of the ways I would make my argument for total depravity is that clearly something is broken, exiled from the garden so that we can't uh, eat from the tree of life, which in, in my view would symbolize sort of this continuous utopia of relationship with God. And and so when someone is asked to, to meet with God face to face, it's not possible. So how would you deal with sort of these these figures in the Old Testament um, and how uh, I think Ezekiel gets coal put on his lips, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, so to me, that shows that there's something uh, fundamentally wrong with the relationship that needs to be restored. Um, oh, for sure, there's something fundamentally wrong. For sure, there's separation. Um, and you see, I like the picture of the temple and the tabernacle, how you cannot enter the Holy of Holies. Like there's yeah. a curtain there. And then when Jesus dies, the curtain's torn. So there's the picture of you. I mean, the whole Israelite camp was built on holiness from the center built out and your different levels of cleanliness towards God means you can move closer or you have to move farther out from the tabernacle. Right. So, yeah, you're cast out from the garden because you have sin. But through but God I mean he he really just portrays himself. He shows that he loves us too much to be like, well, they're separated from me, so I'm just going to stay away. As he keeps approaching us. And so throughout the whole narrative of the Bible, you see people that do draw close to God. You know, obviously there's still sin separating us from total union, but they are they're making their way towards him the best that they can through following his commandments and through setting their heart on him by submitting to his will. So I just, I feel like that's available for everybody. And, and we get the picture in the Bible of a whole bunch of people who do it that. Right. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. So let's just jump over to the parable of soils. Do you want to read it? Sure. 
so this is from Matthew 13, parable of soils. This is like one of the, uh, this is one of the most foundational passages in the Bible for me. And people might be uneasy with that. There's this whole thing about like, you can't mine a parable for too much. And I'm, I'm very cynical attitude towards, I, I cynically think that's just an excuse to, for people to not have to deal with whatever they want in parables. Like you, it does, it's not saying that, it's just a parable. But mm. beyond my own uh, cynicism, <laughs> uh, this passage is really foundational for me. So I'll read some of it here. So the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there, while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. And so I, you know, I see this as just such a clear, there's some people who hold to a very, very um, detailed theology of total depravity, total inability. They're just stuck in this camp of, of two. They're, there's only people who are the path and there's only people who are the good soil. Right. And I see here Jesus saying, no, there's other people too that are kind of in the middle and they're, they're drawn towards it. You know, when Jesus is explaining the parable, he says, you know, they receive the word with joy. But then there's, this, there's things in their life and they can't fully submit. They, they go, oh, there's this tension of that that looks pretty good, but in the end, I have to choose my own kingdom and not God's kingdom. And I think this parable is so good at explaining to us what's going around, what's going on around us. Yeah. Because as we grow older, we experience people that at an earlier time, we would have, of course, claimed they were Christians or followers or disciples. Um, but something's changed. So the way I'd argue this is, is that the way we know um, salvation is true is at the end of someone's life, I guess you would say, is um, did their salvation produce in them the fruits of the Spirit? And so I think um, when dealing with someone like the rocky ground, we would say, uh, did salvation ever truly happen? So how do you make the distinguish between sanctification being uh, forgiven your debts and then justification um, being made holy? <laughs> Big question. Well said. All the, all, the, uh, all the pastors and Bible school teachers out there will judge harshly based on correct definitions of sanctification, justification. Um, I'll start here and then I'll try. I, don't let me dodge your question, but I, I want to say first, I don't believe that salvation, I wrote this yesterday um, and I, 
I think that in this moment was when I was like, ah, this is what I, this is what I'm trying to get at. I don't believe that salvation is an enablement to walk down the path. I believe that it is an open door at the end of the path. And so I think that the Bible is continuously talking about if you persevere to the end, um, you will receive eternal life. You'll receive the crown of life. You'll on and on and on. This idea of, and this is where I think bringing in the parable of the soils, I, I like to picture life as people walking down paths. Um, and one path leads towards God and the other path leads away from him. And I think that all people have the ability and, and most people spend time in their life walking towards God or walking away from him. But walking towards God isn't enough. You have to continue walking towards God. And so for those people who walk towards God faithfully their whole life, at the end they receive ultimate salvation. Um, what? It's tricky. The whole idea of perseverance is such a complex issue, like were they never saved to begin with and all this stuff. And this is where I think that people who aren't saved can definitely spend time walking down the path. They can receive the word with joy. They can start to push roots down, but then those roots hit rocks and they, they don't go very far. Um, because, my, because my view of life is all about ultimate submission to God or so we're going to build his kingdom or are we rejecting God and we're going to build our kingdom? Um, I think people can be in a tension. I think they can be in this tension of, well, I kind of want to submit to God. Like, I see the appeal. I, I recognize something there. But in the end, they can't fully do it. They can't actually be like, no, in the end, I'm not going to submit. And so, you know, I don't think I have an answer for what about the moment? You know, like, where's the moment of justification and, and all of this stuff? But I, I think when I read the Bible, I see all the way from beginning to end just this picture of people moving towards God, moving away from God, and that people who dedicate their life, who, who are able to fully submit to God, those are the ones that are, they make it. Hmm. Interesting. I probably should have cried heretic at some point. <laughs> oh, probably. Um, but that's okay. And, and I'm not really in the business of defining. <laughs> um, but I think, I think what sort of the Reformed tradition does so well is it simplifies stuff. And I think um, maybe that's not actually a good thing. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that frustrates me is this idea of the sinner's prayer. And I'm sure maybe I'm just reflection of the times, but um, there's been such an emphasis on this idea of repentance um, and it being a prayer. And so I just want to kind of wrestle with this for a bit because I think we're kind of on this topic of, okay, what what is, what is um, repentance? Does it, you know, just... Uh, justify us, and obviously it does, but um, so I, I just Googled uh, Sinner's Prayer, and so I'm just going to read it, 
and I want to see how it sits with you. Now that, because this is something that is so emphasized, you know, every summer at camp, um, how many people said the prayer, and that always makes me feel sick and want to throw up. Mm-hmm. But uh, here's the here's where I, what I found. Just a random Google. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Yeah. Um, if we we can indulge ourselves down a rabbit trail for one minute, and we can cut it and post or whatever. <laughs> well um, said. Um, this whole thing about the sinner's prayer and how we feel about it. Just, I just want to touch on that because I, I really try and find a middle ground of I don't hate the idea of the sinner's prayer and of trying to get I hate, I hate the idea of people trying to get children to say the sinner's prayer and like lock them up into this you know <laughs> I like the idea of trying to explain to children the truth and if they grasp the truth they will want to say the sinner's prayer and then they will want to continue on the journey of living out a faithful life, right? So like the sinner's prayer as part of a correct understanding of God and your sin and what you need to do is a good, it's a great start point and hopefully tons of children say it. But as a, as this like, the when it's made to be the goal and we need to get people to say it and then we can wash our hands at the end and say, we, they said it, we're good, let's walk away now. That's the problem. But Well, can we bring up King David here? Because I think there's this great case study of, I don't know, maybe I don't understand repentance, but the way King David does it seems disingenuous. And so um, I'm speaking about um, when Nathaniel comes and confronts David about Bathsheba. And uh, uh, Nathan says, you know, the child will die, I believe. And, and David goes into full repentance mode, if I will say that. Second Samuel 12, 18. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then... Can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that the servants were whispering together, he perceived that the child was dead. And David said to the servants, Is the child dead? They said, Yes, he is dead. Then David rose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went down to his house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then the servant said to him, What is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while it was alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and the child may live, but now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So to me, I don't understand repentance. So maybe you can help explain it to me because <laughs> this, this sinner's prayer um, doesn't, doesn't seem to uh, do it for me. And, and I think my reform background maybe even doesn't accept the idea of repentance. And I think maybe this is what you were getting at before is like, can we actually, are we even able to respond to God in repentance? And so I, I'm really not sure about this. And so maybe help me because I, I don't get it. Yeah. Uh, big question. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it's funny because uh, I had a prof who, no, he didn't hate David. He just didn't like David, but we won't get into that. Um, I re- I've always thought that David is pretty incredible. Um, he's got huge flaws, and when he misses, he misses big. But he, mm-hmm. the statement, and I take seriously the statement the Bible says he's a man after God's own heart, because right. I think that he might be the person in the Bible who understood God the best. And you see that when he messes up. Um, because he, he gets forgiveness. He understands that God wipes away these incredibly, incredibly dark stains that are just horrendous. Um, repentance is... Like, you need to... Uh, let me let me back up. So I was thinking the other day about um, responding to God and how all of us have moments, right? We have moments of talking about repentance. We have moments of conviction. Right. We're in that moment. We get it. We are convicted. We understand oh man, I messed up big time and I'm so sorry. Um, And in that moment, it all comes down on us and we feel the weight and we feel the truth of like, I really messed up and I'm so sorry. Um, but But those are always just moments because the next day or the next hour, that, that understanding that is so crystal in, in that moment, we wouldn't, there's not a chance in the world. We would disobey God in that moment. We have a crystal clear grasp of I did wrong. I'm so sorry. And I want to do right. I want to, I yearn to be a person who doesn't do this, but then that fades, right? That, that really just fades away, it melts away, and, mm-hmm. and we go back to a place where we get tempted, and all of a sudden there's this tug of war, like, well, I kind of, I'm not sure, maybe, maybe I will just dip my toe in. Yeah. That, that, that crystal clear understanding that we had in the moment is gone. And, and so I feel like we're destined, we're... We're stuck not ever grasping repentance in every moment of our lives. But repentance does mean like turning away, you know, like finding a new path, giving up on, you're not, you can't be repentant of a sin and then like keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. it. At some point it's like... Have you really repented? Yeah, and and to me, the thing that breaks me, and what I mentioned before, like, are we even able to repent, is the idea of persistent sin. And this idea of, we can't ever, or I, I from my point of view, um, I am unable to actually turn away, right? This idea that um, our sanctification is is uh, so uh, um, temporary, or I mean, 
I don't know how to say it well, but it, it, it seems evidence to me that we are unable to repent because um, it's, it never comes to fruition. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where my, my difficulty sets, which makes sense, right? The idea that, that we're being made holy and it's, it's not going to come to completion until, you know, the end. Mm-hmm. And this is where, like, in the Bible, God accepts repentance for in the moment, right? Like, he, somebody sins and then they, they put on sackcloth and ashes and they, you know, they, they humble themselves before God and he accepts it. He's like, okay, you, you know what, you did you are repentant. Um, there, there needs to be a trajectory, I think, in our lives, even though it's not a straight line, even though we're going to stumble, even though we're going to mess up. There needs to be a general, if you graph it, there needs to be a line heading in the direction of sanctification. It's going to be a bumpy road. It's going to be, there's going to be pit stops and, but but if we are repentant people, if we are people that are submissive to God, if we are, if we do love Him, there needs to be growth, even if it's slow growth. Yeah, I just think like the more I try and put effort in, and I'm talking specifically about teaching. I teach in a Christian school for those listening, and it's it's you know chasing after the wind. It really is, and the more I just beg God to use me to uh, give me a purpose because I feel often like my days are meaningless. That meaning comes like, and and I'm like, what is the fruit of my job? And, you know, I, I'm not going to see it right now, I think, but my students are in a sense, you know, influenced by me and I have, some, I don't know, hope in that, but I am begging God, (laughs) show me the fruits of my work because I'm, uh, it it does feel, um, uh, like, like I'm missing the boat, I would say. Hmm. I think that even our perspectives and our attitudes are still like something that belongs to us. I, I think that my attitude at work and about understanding the meaning of my job and all of that is still something that I can work on myself. But there needs to be the understanding that when I talk about my work and my effort and my, 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 that it's not in isolation, that I'm not doing it with the exclusion of God, but that it's inviting God in to help me do what Mm. I'm doing. And I, I, I forget if I put this in my paper. I think I did. But I really like the... I, I wrote it down somewhere. I wrote so many things on this subject. <laughs> <laughs> I have like a thousand different writings on this. Anyways, um, I like... I don't have kids, but I, I always am drawn to parent-child analogies. And I love the picture of... A father letting his child do something and watching them struggle with it, but but watching them figure it out and taking joy in that 
and taking pride in that, that, that look what my child is able to do. And uh, in the same picture, but told slightly differently as, an, as a, when you're at work. And if you have anybody under you at your job and you're, you're letting them do something. And, and I remember thinking to myself like, well, if I did that, it would be done better because I'm more experienced. I, this is new to them. So if I did it, it would be done better. But if I let them do it, they will grow in it and they will get better at it. And the same picture of God, I think that God takes those two pictures and that's how he approaches us of this. Well, if I just did it, everything would be awesome. But if I let you do it, and if I let you figure it out, and if I give you control to do it, you learn how to do it. And I, and I love that because I'm your father and I take pride in that and, I, and I'm so happy in you being able to do that. And so I, yeah, all of my talk about our work and our effort isn't to say that it's just us and not God. It's saying, this is what we're doing under God's tutelage, inviting him into it along the way to help us do it, but that it's still this us doing it, I think. Well, and it's a significant point to say, where is the goodness coming from? Because if by being mentored, the goodness is coming from God and I'm learning through them. And the reason I'm making the mistakes is because I'm trying it on my own. If, if we're saying the goodness comes from ourself through the struggle, I think that's the futile thinking. The state that I see coming out of Proverbs, um, and may, maybe we shouldn't jump here, but I think the point of Proverbs is, is this idea of fear. Uh, one day court will be in session and I will be standing in front of the perfect judge. And that should terrify me. Mm-hmm. And, and if that's the case, um, and like I said, I don't feel my repentance is genuine, but I do feel my fear is genuine. Um, and I think that, that is maybe more powerful in my view as, as a means to change is the, the submission to, to God doing the changing within me. And so I feel like repentance is more of an acknowledgement of my inability to repent, (laughs) if you will, or my inability to actually turn from my sin. Um, and, a a faith in, God doing the changing. Um, and that's, that's kind of my, my push for total depravity is this idea that I am helpless and it's, it's accepting the helplessness and fearing God. And that's repentance for me. (laughs) I'm helpless. I fear God. I've had a couple exchanges recently about fear and they've the sense that I get from the people I've been talking with is that f- fear is like a negative thing, fearing God, like this. And I just, I feel like fear of God, fear of judgment that brings about change 
is still an acceptance of the truth. What that is, is a statement of, I believe it's true that God is real. I believe it is true that he is the judge. I believe it is true that he will judge me. Hmm. And if you're, so if fear actually motivates you to do something, isn't that just an acceptance of the truth of God? Like, isn't, isn't, is that really such a bad thing? Right. We don't drive on the wrong side of the road because we fear getting hit. So that fear motivates us to do the right thing. I remember, uh, yeah, because I have been in the past year been thinking from time to time about, you know, like this conversation I'm going to have with God where he says, why, why, like ex- explain to me, Dave, why you thought that having more stuff in your life was of more importance than helping out the poor and the needy. Like you listen, like, you know, the way he says to Job, like, all right, you <laughs> like, give me an answer right now. And I'm going to just be like, dang it, you know? And, and there is this real fear of having to stand before God and be like, what did I do with my life? Um, and I'm, I'm in the space right now where I'm actually think that's a real positive thing. I, I mm. want to be motivated by that more. Yeah. And I, so I, I don't know, we've gone away from repentance a little bit, but I, I feel like repentance is possible. I feel like it is right. an ability that we have. I feel like it's not a lasting thing, but then we do it again. And it's the spirit of when I mess up, I am sorry. And I am trying to not do that. So that there's like a spirit of repentance that is when confronted, I will be like, Oh yes, that I am somebody who's trying not to do this. And I am turning right. away. Yeah. The idea that you're confessing your sins as something that just is part of our life right now mm-hmm. is that this persists with us for an entire life, but one day we will be made holy and obviously the repentance will be complete. So this is Psalm 32. Um, for those that don't know, I'm a musician and so I spend a lot of my time uh, approaching um, the Psalms as a musician would. And so I love trying to create new melodies and stuff for the Psalms. And so I'm recently in, I've just written two songs um, from Psalms 30 and 31. And then I started reading Psalms 32, which is actually quoted by Paul. And I just thought it was unbelievable. And it it fits in with, with what we're talking about today. So let me read. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. While I kept silent, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sins to you. I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all you who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are my hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. Uh, Paul uses this, um, the idea of justification begins with faith, which is what, exactly what you said, right? David speaks of the blessedness of those to whom God gives righteousness apart from their works. You know, faith was given to Abraham as righteousness. It sounds a lot like the sinner's prayer, <laughs> <laughs> which bothers me a lot. Yeah, well, that's why I said I don't, I think the sinner's prayer is fine as long as it's, it's not a... Um, 
an end point. It's the beginning point. It's mm. it's the beginning of your understanding, um, and that that needs to flow out of that. I guess we don't have any way for you to communicate with us, but maybe we will have it, <laughs> and maybe I'll put it in here one day. Um, but uh, thanks for listening. Um, I'm Tom. I'm Dave. And uh, yeah, we'll see you another time for another conversation. Right on. <laughs>